as we um, look at the book of Judges today, I've only got 73 verses to cover, so I'm going to set this up. <laughs> uh, and m- much, most of you are just laughing. 73 verses? When we, we go home? Um, I'm, I'm going to try to set this up in a way that, that makes some sense. And so what I what I'm going to do is, is let you know that, that chapters 19, 20, and 21 go together. And I talked about chapter 19 pretty clearly. Chapter 19 is the incident that has a lot of sin in it. Um, homosexual rapes, rape, sexual violence, a horrible husband, a horrible father, a horrible host. There's a lot that goes wrong. Um, unbelievable violence that takes place in chapter 19. Um, in chapter 20, there's going to be an overreaction to that. Um, yes, what happens in chapter 19 is really bad, but what happens in chapter 20 is equally bad as the, the, the nation overreacts in violence against what has just happened. And they see the error of that, and it's only by God's grace that they're able to fix that in chapter 21. So there's horrible sin, an overreaction, and God's sovereignty f- figuring all of that out and making sure that his plan continues to move forward. Um, last week, I addressed the sins. Um, and we called sin, sin last week. Um, n- not just homosexuality, but yes, homosexuality is, is a sin. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that's difficult to struggle with, but, but we called sin, sin. And not just homosexual sin, but sexual violence and um, horrible husbands and horrible fathers. Uh, we called all of that sin. And, and I want to make a few comments about that today in terms of how we respond to this in a specific way. And it particularly grows out of what you're going to see in the message today, that, that we should not respond to sin in hateful ways. What we want to do is walk a narrow path. And at Fellowship, we've always tried to walk this narrow path. And I, I consistently have used these words that we are welcoming, but not affirming. We, we want to welcome without affirmation. Here's what I mean by that. It's possible to welcome homosexual people into the church but not welcome homosexuality into the church, okay? So we, we can welcome the people, but not affirm their sin. It's similar to saying we welcome all sinners at fellowship while we don't affor- affirm any sin. Here's another way to say that. I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. You're welcome. But I'm not affirming any sin that you or I may be dealing with or struggling with, but, but sinners are welcome here. Um, the other way to say this is we want to be compassionate without compromise. Let me explain that a little bit. Um, at the same time as being compassionate without compromise, we recognize that homosexuality, as, as well as many other sexual sins, is a significant deviation from God's design for men and women as those who bear the image of God, and yet it's not the worst of all possible sins. Um, I, I want to admit, like abortion... It, it boils down to bearing the image of God and honoring people who bear the image of God. Um, homosexuality is, is people who bear the image of God, but they're violating that in a really interesting way because Genesis chapter 26 tells us that we're created in the image of God. Verse number 27 says, male and female. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us, not just about homosexuality, but 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that all other sins a person commits are outside of his body. But sexual sins are a sin against your body. I don't know exactly what that means. All I know is sexual sins are different. Because sexual sins get at this identity of us as men and women who bear the image of God. So I want to affirm that that all sexual sins are significant. 
Um, homosexuality is not the worst of all possible sins. Here's the worst sin, rejecting Jesus Christ. That's the only unforgivable sin. But I also want to remind us that God is gracious and he loves all people, and he's always been in the business of redemption. The whole story of the Bible, from the garden through the nation of Israel and the church and through church history, God has been all about redemption. Um, I think our attitude should be that of Paul, who in 1 Timothy 5 said it this way. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. (laughs) But for this very fact, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's, Paul's perspective of this is, I'm no better than anybody else. And while it's appropriate to name sin, sin. Whether that is homosexuality, sexual violence, horrible parenting, um, abusive men, it's appropriate to name sin, sin. It's not appropriate to say other people are worse than us. We need to view ourselves as the chief of sinners. And as this passage says, because if I can show that I'm the chief of sinners and God is showing his mercy to me, then his mercy is available to you. So we want to be welcoming without affirming. We want to be compassionate without compromising. And I want to tell you, being compassionate demands understanding a really complex issue. Um, I'm going to give you one resource. If, if this isn't an issue in your life, you, you, you probably may not be um, aware of all that is out there. Um, th- these are complicated issues. Uh, trust me, uh, because of the position I'm in, I, I am uh, always having to, to kind of figure out all these things that are going on and, and whether it's okay to say you're a same-sex attracted Christian living a celibate lifestyle with side B ethics. Um, or is it okay to say I'm a gay Christian with side B ethics? And many of you are going, side B ethics? What is that? I think I like side A, not side... No, you like side B, because side B ethics, if you're in the world, because everybody's trying to figure this out. What does it mean to be a Christian? Side B ethics are biblical ethics. It's a person who feels attraction for their same sex, but they are living a biblical ethic, and they're not involved in any aberrant behavior. <laughs> um, this is complex, folks. Trust me, it is complex. If you want just a brief introduction, this past Monday, um, the Table podcast from Dallas Seminary um, had a conversation between Daryl Bach and Sam Alberry. It, it took place a little bit ago, but they re-released it this past week. And I'd encourage you, it'll just give you an overview. It is not in-depth. If you struggle with these issues or you have family members that struggle, my guess is you know a lot of other places to go. But just to give you a sense that these are complex, not simple issues, I would encourage you to at least listen to this podcast uh, with Daryl Bach and Sam Alberry, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna end this little part of the introduction to the message with a quote that Daryl says in this podcast, but he says it repeatedly. He says, "You can be 100% right theologically and completely biblical in your perspective, but if your tone is not right, there's a lot of work still to be done. You can be right and still be wrong." And I want to encourage us. We are taking a stand against sin and abortion and homosexuality and sexual sin and sexual violence and mistreatment of women. But we do that recognizing that 
the ground is level at the foot of the cross, folks. And we have to speak that with a tone that says sin is sin, and I'm in need of grace as well. And God has compassion for you. And see, we want to be welcoming without affirming. We want to be compassionate without compromise. With that introduction, I need to get into my 73 verses I'm supposed to cover today. Uh, Again, just real briefly, we've covered six major judges of the 12 that are talked about, because some of the 12 are just in small doses to get us up to the number of 12 to kind of let us know we've covered the entire nation of Israel. At the beginning of Judges, there is um, this introduction that shows the external threats that are coming from the nations around them and from the gods around them that they're worshiping. By the time we get to the end of the book, where we are, the threats are no longer external, the threats are internal. They are a threat to themselves. The idolatry is the idolatry of how they're worshiping Yahweh. The, The threat is no longer war from the outside. You'll see today it's civil war where they're eliminating one of their own tribes. So things have really turned around. Um, There's two conclusions. The first conclusion is really about the idolatry as um, Micah uh, sets up a a personal shrine with his own Levite, and then that Levite is stolen by a a, a tribe that is uh, the Danites that are moving up north. And and it just shows the perversion of their worship. What we're going to see here in the second conclusion is as I've said, it's this perversion, this, the incident, the immorality, and the immorality is rampant. Then we're going to see this overreaction where they're violent in their overreaction. But then we're going to see God sovereignly working through all of this to make sure that his purposes are accomplished. And all of this is framed by these statements that happen at the beginning of these double conclusions, 17 through 21. The beginning in 17, it says, in those days, Israel had no king, Everyone did what they saw fit. Because they don't have a literal king who's representing the Lord, and they don't even have a sense that God is their king, they're just doing whatever they please. There's no one ruling them. There's no one ruling them. And then the very last verse of the book of Judges, and we'll get there today. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And when there's no king, and everyone's doing what they see fit, the wheels come off, and there's rampant sin and horrible responses to that, and yet God doesn't give up on his people. Um, Al Ross says of this conclusion, he says, Judges 19 to 21 is the picture of how bad a society can get when there's no real spiritual influence. This is raw human nature, and this is. This is raw human nature. He goes on to say, their response is not justice, but uncontrolled vengeance. It's not standing up for justice. They overreact to this. Um, and there's, there's a horrible reaction. As they eliminate, they come right on the edge of eliminating one entire tribe in the nation of Israel. Um, this reminds me to recommend one more time this book that I read back in January called Bullies and Saints. Um, I recommended it back then. Only a couple of you read it and let me know you read it. So thank you. But not enough of you did. So read this book. Bullies and Saints, it's an honest look at Christian history, and here's what John Dixon says. He shows that the history of Christianity is full of horrendous evil and abusive abuses of power in the name of Christ. Church history is full of it. It's not just the Old Testament. It's not even a few incidents in the New Testament. Church history is full of, of people in the name of Christ doing horrible things. Luckily, 
He also shows us that the history of Christianity is full of unimaginable acts of love and compassion in the name of Christ. Both things are present. We can represent him well, and we can represent him poorly. I'm begging you, let's represent him well as we stand against sin with a gracious and compassionate attitude. Dixon concludes the book with with this thought. The church is at its best in history and today when it performs the beautiful tune of Jesus well. The beautiful tune is loving others, including our enemies, and treating every image bearer with dignity and value, which includes sharing the gospel clearly and with grace. We love everybody. Jesus Christ told us to love everybody. That's not new. What he says is love everybody as you love yourself and even love your neighbors. That's a Christian ethic. And it's, it's treating everyone as image bearers, even the unborn and even people who commit sins that we would significantly disagree with. We treat them as image bearers with dignity and grace as we share the grace of the gospel with them. As we move into this passage, I want to remind you, once again, nobody has a name here. Um, they, none of these people have a name. Beginning back in chapter 17, it's just um, a, a, a Levite. Um, there aren't people named. In chapter 19 through 21, the main people, we don't know any of these people. It's just a guy, a Levite, and his concubine, a guy, an old man in Gibeah. Nobody has a name. And the idea is, They've gotten so bad, they have lost their humanity. There's nobody here even worth naming. And just one quick perspective. The area that is being talked about with all of these battles is about a 10, 15 square mile area. Um, All of these battles are going to take place just north of Jerusalem. Gibeah is just a few miles north of Jerusalem. But all of this takes place in a small area. I'm telling you that these people probably knew each other and yet they're killing one another. One last structural thing. Um, Chapters 19 through 21 kind of work this way. It starts off with the violent abuse of of this Levite's concubine. It starts with violent abuse, and then slaughter. (laughs) Then this crazy oath that they make that, that leads them to almost genocide and the slaughter of more Israelites. And the slaughter of those Israelites, you're going to see, results in the violent abuse of more women. That's what's going on in this passage. Uh, Kenneth Way introduces the passage this way. He said, God may express his judgment by letting his people suffer the consequences of their own selfish decisions. And you're going to see that. However, God also graciously preserves the nation of Israel. There's a sin. It's outrageous. It's horrible in chapter 19. God allows them to to suffer the consequences of their own foolish decisions in chapter 20. And yet in chapter 21, God um, preserves his purposes. What we saw last week was this. (laughs) Sodom and Gomorrah is revisited. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of the epitome of what the Canaanites were like, happens in Israel now. In fact, ironically, um, the Levite is, is bypassing a pagan city to get to an Israelite city in Gibeah where all of the atrocities take place. When God's people live with the world's values, no king, doing what's right in their own eyes, regular life begins to contain unimaginable evil. We saw that in chapter, 20, uh, in chapter 19. Misogyny, um, sexual violence, horrible violence, sexual predators... When, when the wheels are coming off, that's what it looks like. 
I made the application that Israel now looks like the Canaanites and Sodom and Gomorrah is eclipsed in Israel. For us in the church, God's people, sometimes we look like the world. We react like the world. And sometimes Las Vegas seems to be eclipsed by what goes on in some churches on Sunday morning. The craziness that happens in some churches on Sunday morning, um, when it's just entertainment and it's not about actually getting in God's word and worshiping the God of the universe. That's what we saw in chapter 19. Now as we move into chapter 20, um, there's going to be this overreaction, and and they're going to get rid of Benjamin. Gibeah, where the sins took place in chapter 19, Gibeah is a Benjamite town. And God is going to eventually allow his people to destroy themselves by turning them over to their own devices. Here's the story. Then all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and from the land of Gilead, came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their place in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men, I'm going to pause for a minute. This word thousand, the Hebrew word is elif. It's a difficult word to know how to translate. It can mean a thousand. It can also mean a squad, um, kind of a brigade. Uh, currently in Israel, it's the name for an army general. So it, the numbers are going to be weird here. The, the numbers are probably not as big. This may not be um, that large of a number. It may not be 400,000 men. It may be 400 squads instead of 400,000 men. But they're assembled as all one people. They took their place in the assembly of God's people. They're armed with swords. And the Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Um, the first thing I want to point out is the unity of God's people. Ken Way says this, This convocation of almost all Israel is a first in the book of Judges. Ironically, the dismembered body of the concubine is the occasion for the gathering of the unified body of Israel, which is about to dismember itself. Another irony is that they are able to unify against themselves in a way that they were never able to do against pagan inhabitants of the land. At the beginning of the book, they should have unified to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They never unified. Now they're finally unified to exterminate one of their own tribes. So much like Christians. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing has happened. How has this awful thing happened? (laughs) Mary Evans is really good. Their heartfelt question, why has this happened to Israel, clearly calls for an answer, although the writers leave it implicit. Because of your own stupid behavior and your failure to consult and heed God at a much earlier stage. You know how this happened? You weren't following the Lord. (laughs) Your stupidity and your foolishness, your sinful choices is what's got you here. So the Levite, remember the guy from last week, the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. No, they weren't intending to kill him. They wanted to rape him. Now, maybe they were going to kill him, but now he's shading the story. This guy is not a good guy. They raped my concubine, and she died. I took my concubine, and obviously, I cut her up into pieces and sent one piece to each region in Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act. They committed the lewd and outrageous act, not me cutting up the, my concubine and sending her around the nation. Do you see how they've lost their their footing? Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me, what have you decided to do? All the men rose up together as one, now they're unified, saying, none of us will go home. No, not one of us will return to his house. But now, this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in order to decide, in order, decided by casting lots. 
We'll take 10 men out of every 100 and from all the tribes of Israel and 100 from 1,000 and 1,000 from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. Again, they are united, finally. The irony is obvious and tragic. At the beginning of the book, Israel has prepared to unite against a common foe, the Canaanites. Now, at the end of the book, the original idea has failed to materialize. Israel has descended to the moral level of Sodom, and the tribes were forced to take action against one of their own brothers. Any unity between the tribes now is hollow. God wants them to be unified, but not to do this. The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn these wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. That's actually justice. These men had committed a capital crime, and there should have been justice for it. Now I don't know why the next thing happens, but it does. The Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. They said, we're not giving them up. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000, maybe 26 squads, of swordsmen from their own town, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Here's what you need to know. The Benjamites have 700 special forces troops. They've been trained, and they're really good with their slings. This will explain a little bit how one tribe is going to be able to hold off the rest of the nation. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 or 400 squads of swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. This is interesting. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah should go. Who's supposed to go? Judah goes. I love Ken Way's introduction to what's about ready to happen. God is now back in the story, but he's not Israel's friend. Judah you go, and this is what happens. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. God says, Judah go up. Judah went up, and they got it handed back to them. Um, 22 squads or 22,000 Israelites died in the battlefield that day, and they had asked God. I think God is saying, you deserve this. Judah goes. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. The Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord. They said, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? The Lord said, go up against them again. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd be too encouraged. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin a second day. This time when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. (laughs) Two days in a row... God says, yeah, have at them. And they get totally um, embarrassed in the battle. Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel, and there they sat and wept before the Lord. I'm still not quite sure whether they're truly repentant or not. The reason, they fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. That's a good step. There should be a sin offering in here, by the way. If you know the offerings, there should be a sin offering. I don't know. In those days, the Ark of the Covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. What this means is um, this event takes place early in the period of the judges. Um, This is early in this 
380-year period. This, this is taking place pretty early in that time period. So it's not chronological, but it is the climax of how the author wants us to see this is how bad it was in the land. Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not? Now, the Lord's response is different here. The Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. The first time he said, just go. Now he's going to say, okay, this time I'm going to give them into your hands. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. We're going to get one description of it and then some details. The Israelites set an ambush around Gibeah. They went, against, they went up against uh, the Benjamites on the third day and took positions against Gibeah as they had done before. The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before. So about 30 men fell in the open field on the roads. By the way, 30 men falling and 18,000. There's something going on with numbers here. Um, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. When the Benjamites were saying, we're defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. So they draw them out, they act like they're being defeated, and then they run down the road and they're chasing them down the road. All the men of Israel moved from their places and took up positions at Baal Tamar, and the Israelites ambushed, charged out of its place on the west of Gibeah. Then 10,000 of Israel's um, able young men made a frontal attack on Gibeah. All the warriors have come out of the city. Now they're rushing into the city. Um, The fighting was so heavy that the Benjamites did not realize how near the disaster was. The fighting was so heavy with the group that had left the city, they didn't realize what's happening behind them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. Just one more reminder, God's the true victor in all of these stories. (laughs) None of these people. These Judges, as we have seen, they all have a lot to be left to be desired because God is the king. On that day, the Israelites struck down 25,100 Benjamites, all armed with swords. Then the Benjamites saw that they were beaten. Now, a little bit of a recap. Now, the men of Israel had given way before the Benjamites because they relied on the ambush they had set near Gibeah. Those who had been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. The Israelites had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and then the Israelites would counterattack. So they go in when they have wiped out the city, they send up smoke, and now the Israelites are stopped drawing them away, and now they're going to turn around and everybody's going to collapse in on the attack. The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the Israelites. About 30 had died at that time, and they said, we're defeating them as, as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke rose up from behind them, the Benjamites turned and saw the whole city going up in smoke. Then the Israelites counterattacked, and the Benjamites were terrified because they realized that the disaster had come upon them. They realized it was a trap. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the wilderness, but they could not escape the battle, and the Israelites who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them valiant warriors." As they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Giddim and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters. But 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed for four months. 600 guys escape. 600 of these warriors, they escape. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword. That's an overreaction, by the way. Including the animals and everything else they found. All the towns they came across, they set on fire. This is full-on vengeance. 
Um, I'm going to give you a quote by uh, Del Ralph Davis that I think is important. As we see what's happened in this story and the shock of it, Del Ralph Davis says this, Some Christians will delude themselves by thinking this sort of judgment could fall on Old Testament Israelites, but never on God's people in this age. They only show they have never understood their Savior, who told us repeatedly that He will discipline us because He loves us. On the other hand, we may be veritably crushed and yet have, and yet have hope because in the middle of all of our scourges, we simply have access to the Father. If you're in the middle of it, if you're in the middle of being disciplined by the Lord, because you're the chief of sinners and you understand that, if you're in the middle of being disciplined by Him, remember, there's always an opportunity for you to turn back to Him, no matter what. So now they've wiped out all the Israelites. Bye-bye, Benjamin, or the Benjamites. Bye-bye. There's only 600 of them left up in this fortress at Rock Rimmon. So the aftermath, what are we going to do? They, they freak out because they have wiped out a crowd, a, 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 a tribe. And now they're going to have to try to figure out how to get 600 brides for 600 brothers. Sometimes you can step over a, a line of moral decay where only the grace of God and his larger purposes, not for us, but to accomplish his glory, are the only things that are left. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of them would give a daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel, where they sat before the God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why, what has, why has this happened in Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? Because you slaughtered them. I don't understand this question. Again, it, it's, it's because of your stupid uh, lack of heeding God's word earlier. Early the next day, people built an altar and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Still, they need a sin offering. Then the Israelites ask, Who from all the tribes of Israel has failed to assemble before the Lord? For they had taken a solemn oath that anyone who failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah was to be put to death. We, we, we wanted to wipe them all out, but we got 600. And oh my gosh, now we've only got 600 Benjamites. What are we going to do? We've almost wiped out a tribe, and we've told all everybody else they can't marry any of those guys. So we've got to figure out a plan. Now, is this the group you want figuring out the plan? I think not, because here's the plan that they come up with. Was there anybody not with us when we made the pledge to not marry them? Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today one tribe is cut from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left, since we have taken an oath for the Lord not to give any of our daughters to them in marriage? Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? They discovered that no one from Jabesh-Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh-Gilead were there. Oh, when we got together and pledged not to give our, our daughters to them, there was a town that didn't show up. Here's a good plan. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh-Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you were to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who is not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man, and they took them to the camp in Shiloh in Canaan. Probably 412 to 14 year old girls, their families are slaughtered, and they're taken away to give to the remnant of the Benjamite tribes. This is a horrible solution. 
Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimmon. So the Benjamites returned at the time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared, but there were not enough for all of them. Remember, there's 600 now, we've only got 200, or we've only got 400. We need 200 more virgins. Where are we going to find 200 more virgins? This bright group comes up with this plan. The people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a gap in the tribes of Israel. God's still sovereign in all this. And the elders of the assembly said, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, with the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? The Benjamite survivors must have heirs, they said, so that a tribe of Israel will not be wiped out. We can't give them our daughters as wives, since we Israelites have taken this oath. Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to a Benjamite. But look, there's an annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. There's a festival up there. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, Go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards, and each one of you sees one of them to be your wife, then return to the land of Benjamin. Nice solution. Go kidnap some unsuspecting young girls. By the way, the, the word that's used there, uh, ataf, is the word that's used of a lion stalking its prey. It's violent seizing. When their fathers or brothers complain to us, we will say to them, do us the favor of helping them because we didn't get wives for them during the war. You will not be guilty of breaking our oath because you didn't give your daughters to them. You didn't give your daughters to them. They were stolen. So that is what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off. This word, um, Gazal, it's the word that is used for what the men did in Gibeah when they pushed the concubine out, they seized her. This is what these guys are doing. Then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them. At this time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each one to his own inheritance. We've only got one verse left in Judges. Aren't you glad? Mary Evans captures this well. There are many victims in this final account, no heroes. None of these are good solutions. It begins with violence against women, and we can't soft sell it. It ends with violence against women. Robert Chisholm says, Women who in the beginning of the book inspire great deeds and played the role of national deliverers like Deborah and J.L. and the woman who dropped the rock on Abimelech's head. Um, are now raped, slaughtered, and kidnapped by their own countrymen. Ironically, the brutalization of Israelite women anticipated by Sisera's mother, back in chapter 5, um, Sisera, the enemy king, his mother is imagining his, her son coming home and how um, the, the warriors will be bringing women that they have captured with them. The brutalization of Israelite women anticipated by Sisera's mother becomes a reality not through a ruthless foreign conqueror and his soldiers, but through Israelite men. Dan Block says this, the manner in which men treat women today serves as a barometer of the spiritual climate of a nation, society, church, or family. In Judges, the escalating violence parallels the escalating deterioration of the status of women. This link has also been supported by recent research, which has shown that the status of women can be linked to the level of violence and volatility in a society. You want to know why women are trying to fight for their rights now? Because men have treated them so poorly. If men would control themselves in their treatment of women and honor them and respect them, 
we would not have the problems that we have today with women who are demanding the right for abortion. Men, it's time for us to step up and treat women well. Honor them, respect them, protect them, lead them well. In those days, Israel had no king, no spiritual leader, no recognition that God is our sovereign leader, and therefore everyone did as they saw fit. It's pretty bad. We're done with judges. But I do have one small piece of good news that Dale Ralph Davis delivers. I think this is fascinating. So the book of Judges ends with a miracle. How after chapters 19 through 21, indeed after chapters 1 through 21, can you account for the fact that there is still an Israel? It can only be because Yahweh wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of its sin. It can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity and insists on still holding them fast, even in their sinfulness and their stupidity. Thank God for that truth. There's still a future for Israel. And the only reason the church still exists after centuries of bullies and saints is because God's grace is more tenacious than our stupidity. So here's how I'd end this final reminiscence here. While God may allow his people to suffer the consequences of their own foolish decisions, often orchestrating themselves, Judah should go up first. Yeah, have at it. He will always graciously accomplish his own redemptive purposes. God's going to bring honor and glory to himself, and he's going to redeem. So just like last week, I would end with this. You know, God's people could do horrible things, but there will be consequences. Sometimes self-inflicted, sometimes God-orchestrated. And there's a limit to the patience of God with individuals, with families, with nations, with churches, with countries. And so what we're called to do is live a countercultural life of fidelity to God and loving others. Jesus boiled it down to that. Love God, love others. Kenway concludes this. Judges does not have a happy ending. The only way to break the cycle is to adhere to God's word and turn from sin. Call sin, sin, and turn from it and love people around you. This is doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord instead of doing what is right in one's own eyes. And God is gracious. He's always there when we turn back to him. And when we don't, he allows us so often to experience our own foolish consequences. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for how it speaks to our lives. And Father, I pray that our study through the book of Judges would remind us of the fact that you are the only true hero, (laughs) that you are our king, that doing what is right in your eyes is the only way to live life. And Father, I pray that you would um, keep us focused on being um, compassionate people without compromise not compromising sin in our own lives or sin in the others, but being compassionate because we know 
The foot's level. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Help us to love you well, represent you well, and love others around us. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.